Hello, I'm Chris Marshall, Deputy Editor of Holyrood. Here at Holyrood, we recently hosted four online hustings looking at some of the big issues in the run-up to the election on May the 6th. Yesterday's podcast was on the economy. This session, chaired by journalist Jenny Davidson, was on the environment. Good morning and welcome to the Holyrood Environment Hustings. Thank you to all our uh, participants. We've got uh, environment spokespeople from the five main parties this morning. I know they're doing a lot of hustings. We're very grateful for them uh, giving their time to, to our one and I hope you'll find it interesting and informative. Um, so just to, to run through the format, um, we're going to start off with two minute opening statements from each of the, the candidates, the first 10 minutes, and then we'll move into questions from yourselves for about 40 minutes from sort of 10, 15 until about five to 11. And, and Liz Smith needs to leave promptly at five to 11, so we'll be, we'll be cutting off then. Um, I've already got quite a few questions pre-submitted, but feel free to also um, put more questions in the chat box at the bottom of your screen. Can't promise we're, we'll get through all of them. I think we, we may have too many, but I'll try and do a, a selection on a variety of topics to, to get a kind of taste of the, the different parties' policies. Now, the Twitter hashtag for um, this event is hashtag HollyroodHustings21, um, and it'd be great if you could also tag at Holyrood Events in any tweets you're doing. We'd encourage you to to, to tweet your thoughts and, and tweet what, what the candidates are saying during the event. Um, now, we'll also be recording this event and you'll be able to get an um, on-demand replay sent to you afterwards. Well, it will be sent to you afterwards. So uh, let me just introduce our five candidates. We have Julian Martin from the SNP. We have Liz Smith from the Scottish Conservatives. We have Sarah Boyack from Scottish Labour. Mark Rusko from the Scottish Greens and Molly Nolan from the Scottish Liberal Democrats. So without further ado, I will just let them speak. So we will go in that order. So we'll start with Gillian uh, Martin. I think you're on mute. I can't hear you anyway. I don't know if anyone else can. Sorry, I'm so too used to people unmuting for me. How how spoilt is that? So I'm Gillian Martin, representing the Scottish National Party, as Jenny said. And in the last parliament, we set world-leading emissions reduction targets in our Climate Change Act. But now this parliament is about the action and delivering them and accelerating that action because the, 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 the targets are immensely challenging, but they're also extremely necessary. We aim to target the emissions at source, tackle the emissions at source, that currently emanate from the way that we work and live our lives today, but also sequester our carbon um, using our natural resources. We're attacking the main emissions sources of housing and transport, accelerating our home heating programme, stopping the sale of new petrol and diesel cars by 2030, decarbonising our public transport. And we've got a programme to restore 250,000 acres of degraded peatland, um, and we're doubling our, our woodland creation. One of the things I'm most proud of in our manifesto is that our net zero ambition weaves through every single policy area. It's every government's responsibility. And we'll also be appointing a just transition minister uh, to ensure we do the, the right things, the things the right way and leave no one behind. And key to delivering on these ambitions is reskilling the workforce to get us to net zero. With many sectors that are high carbon in this country and they employ thousands of people in our communities, we need to make sure with our 500 million uh, skills funding that we uh, transfer them into the, the, 
the sectors of the future to get us to net zero. Um, that's a basic summary and I look forward to answering all your questions. Thank you. Thanks, Gillian. So next we'll go to Liz Smith from the Scottish Conservatives. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you very much to the Holyrood uh, set up for um, organising these hustings. I think there uh, there may be many of them, but um, they're all uh, very enjoyable. Um, my name is Liz Smith, as you know, and I'm standing as the Scottish Conservative candidate for Perthshire South in Kinrosshire, and I, I've lived in that constituency for uh, 22 years, and for 14 of them I was very privileged to be in three sessions of Parliament as uh, Shadow Cabinet Secretary for Education's Chief Whip, and then Shadow Cabinet Secretary for Environment, a role I really enjoyed. Um, so let me outline straight away what I think the most urgent priorities are when it comes uh, to this whole portfolio area. And, and can I just say that I think we need to address this portfolio from very much from a holistic angle. Uh, and that is something that um, in Julian Martin's committee that's just spoken about um, was put to us by a huge number of the um, witnesses that we uh, heard from, both about the um, the green recovery, but also in terms of uh, the environment and the update in the climate change plan. So I think they all have to be seen in that holistic approach. I think the green recovery, it, for me, it is an absolute top priority. And that means ensuring that the, the jobs of the future, which are going to be so important, uh, are green jobs. And I think the investment has to be uh, targeted at these green jobs. But also in terms of um, the, the infrastructure development, I think we have a lot to do to ensure that the infrastructure development across uh, Scotland reflects that green agenda and that we're doing all we can to ensure that there is a, a much greener uh, infrastructure, especially when it comes to transport and heating and uh, all the other things that you know, are so much part of the, of the overall ambition. I think, uh, secondly, I, I think the the way that we approach the uh, climate change uh, issues and both maintaining and enhancing the biodiversity, uh, that absolutely has to go hand in hand with the green recovery, because unless we do more on that basis, uh, then I think that you know, all the plans that we have um, are, are not going to be uh, fulfilled. And of course, that, that takes on board an awful lot of the approach to nature and uh, our endangered species. And then I think the, the third thing, uh, which uh, we're very keen on is to see the circular economy bill, which the Scottish Government uh, promised in the last Parliament. I want to see that come forward as a matter of absolute urgency uh, in the next Parliament. So these are the three priorities that we would set out as Conservatives. Thank you. Lovely. And next, uh, Sarah Boyack from Scottish Labour. Thanks very much. Well, it was great to join you all this morning. I am the Scottish Labour candidate for the Lothians. Um, when I first joined the Parliament in 1999, I was given the privilege of being our Transport Planning and Environment Minister and kicked off with new national parks, um, our first renewables targets, investment in active travel and buses for the first time. And 20 years on, uh, we need to massively accelerate our investment in our natural environment because we've got a nature emergency and we all know that we have to tackle our climate emergency now. And the, although we've got great targets, which Scottish Labour pushed for through amendments to the last two climate acts, we've actually got to make the next five years the years where we do the carbon transition to low carbon. But at the same time, we've got to recover from the pandemic. So our climate recovery plan would see us creating thousands of jobs in green industry. It would see us using the 11 billion pounds of Scottish government public procurement to make sure that these are low carbon and zero carbon investments. 
and we also want to make sure we have a proper analysis on the investment that comes through infrastructure. That means that we'd be looking at massively increasing the energy retrofitting in our homes, not just to tackle fuel poverty, but to move to low carbon and zero carbon supply as well. We'd also be looking at 10% um, of our transport budget would be on active travel, and we'd make sure that we move to green transport across the country. So in terms of investment, that's critical. But the, the last thing I would mention is we also need to make sure that we invest in our land because we have a nature emergency as well. So for Scottish Labour, we'd create 10,000 jobs in a conservation core, giving young people opportunities right across Scotland in rural as well as urban Scotland. We'd want to see action with regional land partnerships involving communities. Um, there's still more to do on community ownership of land. And we'd want to see both the, um, the circular economy bill and the Good Food Nation Bill as urgent priorities, because both of them are about supply change. They're about changing from business as usual to low carbon business and making sure that our Scottish National Investment Bank and our pension funds are used to invest in green infrastructure and a just transition. So the next five years are absolutely crucial. Um, Scottish Labour has got some great ideas and be very keen to um, get the maximum number of Labour MSPs so that we can increase our negotiating capacity in this next parliament because we've all got to work together because we all know that we are not moving fast enough. And I think the last debate we had on environment and climate change demonstrated this cross-party commitment but we need to make sure that we've got the legislation and we've got the change in government expenditure that we urgently need. Thanks. Thanks, Sarah. And next we'll go to Mark Rusco from the Scottish Greens. Yeah, thanks very much, Jenny. Um, look, I think it's a really exciting election because it's the first election where the climate emergency has really been centre stage. But, you know, ironically, it's also the last election before it's too late and we can't afford to have irreversible climate change. So we have to take transformative action now. And it's the same with the nature emergency too, because we know that one in nine of our species across the UK are threatened with extinction. So the time is really now to have an ambitious program of restoration, rewilding of our seas and land, and restoring some of that former diversity and abundance. We've really got just two parliamentary terms then to bring about this really transformative change that's needed. And in the last term of the Scottish Parliament, Greens with a small number of MSPs, we work constructively across the parties. We brought in a protection for mountain hares, ban on kelp dredging, we helped to strengthen the Climate Act, we helped to create the right conditions to ban fracking, we funded marine protected areas through our budget deals, established a nature recovery fund, a farming transformation fund, we put free bus travel on the agenda, improved money for energy efficiency, walking and cycling. So we've used our influence constructively within the Parliament but that's not enough. Um, we need an absolute step change now to get the green recovery. And that's why my party's putting forward an ambitious package to create 100,000 jobs in Scotland, focusing on four areas, climate recovery, energy transition, house, investment in housing and energy efficiency, investment in nature restoration and public transport. So as part of that, we want 150 million pound nature restoration fund, 250 million pounds to invest in creating two national parks, ambitious targets for native woodland re regeneration and restoration, and investment finally in the rangering services that we've lost over many years, and investing in other forms of carbon sequestration such as peatlands as well. 
But I think a key challenge for the next session of Parliament, a key challenge I think for all parties here this morning is about having coherent policies that are all facing in the right direction. We don't have that at the moment. We've still got parties committed to expansion of oil and gas without a fair and just transition. We've got parties committed to you know, reducing traffic emissions, but at the same time still proposing road building programs. And we need to see real change in the agricultural subsidy as well. At the moment, we're subsidizing problems connected with the climate and nature emergencies rather than growing the solutions and subsidizing the solutions to those problems. So I look forward to the, the discussions that we're going to have here later on this morning. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. And finally, Molly Nolan from the Scottish Liberal Democrats. Thanks, Jenny, and good morning, everyone, um, and happy Earth Day. Um, it's, it's a very timely uh, debate. My name is, <clears throat> excuse me, Molly Nolan. I'm the Scottish Liberal Democrat candidate for Caithness, Sutherland and Ross, which is one of the largest, most rural constituencies in Scotland. And I'm also my party's spokesperson for environment, climate change and land reform. And it's an honour to be here with you today. As we all know, and has been said by previous candidates as well, climate change is absolutely the defining challenge of our era. We've got less than a decade to turn the tide on the climate emergency we are facing, and this is going to require real national focus uh, akin to what we've experienced during the COVID pandemic. The Liberal Democrat manifesto is designed to be green in its entirety, so every single policy area is about reflecting the green agenda and helping us eliminate our reliance on fossil fuels, and this is what we need in the next parliament. Setting targets, while very important, is not enough. We need really radical action to meet them. And this means urgently decarbonizing our homes, uh, our transport, switching to a, a truly circular economy, um, and urgently tackling the nature emergency as well. One million plants and animals are at risk of extinction. We need to boost our biodiversity and fight climate change using nature. To, to, to Liberal Democrats, this is an election about our national priority. As Scotland prepares to, to host COP26, the entire world is watching us, and, and I know what I want to see, a parliament that has a needle-sharp focus on working together, decarbonising our society and halting the climate emergency. Thanks to committed citizen activists, we have some of the most ambitious targets in the world, but our parliament has been too distracted to meet them. So Liberal Democrats will put the recovery first and we will make sure it is a green one. I look forward to having your questions. Thank you. Thanks, Molly. That's great. So now we've heard from all candidates, we're going to move over to questions. Now, I'm going to open with a general one, which is what are the immediate priorities and what do you propose to do to ensure that Scotland's recovery from COVID-19 will be a green recovery? Now, I'm going to try and alternate the order of the candidates and uh, hopefully not miss anyone while I do that. So I will go to Liz Smith first for this one. Uh, thank you, and a very good question. I mean, I, th I think the, the green recovery is central, and uh, the last Parliament spent a huge amount of time on this. And I think I think you've just seen this morning, actually, that uh, the Parliament, um, the, the candidates representing the parliamentary parties are all pretty agreed on the priority that that must have. But there are some really important issues within that, namely the balance uh, between uh, growing the economy but also ensuring that we're addressing uh, the environment and some of the behaviour changes. In fact, I think that's one of the most difficult and uh, pressing issues is to, to look at um, our behaviour and uh, include myself in that as an individual. What more do we have to do in the green recovery to ensure that that uh, change in behaviour is working towards these um, climate change uh, ambitions? But it, it, it's, a, it's about jobs. 
I mean, out of out of COVID has come uh, very considerable concerns about the economy and how we improve that economy, um, particularly in terms of jobs. And so it, it does mean a transition. Uh, that has to be done, I think, very sensitively and very carefully with the right incentives in the right place. It's definitely about infrastructure. We do need that infrastructure to encourage people out of their cars, onto trains, onto buses, to cycle. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of things in there about the green recovery and the investment, I think, should follow that. Thank you. Uh, we'll go to Mark Ruskell next. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, an important question. And I think, um, you know, we need to learn some lessons in the past here. So when we had the financial crash in 2008, you know, just around the time of the Copenhagen Climate Summit, um, we, we didn't build back better from that financial crash. Um, we just built back to business as usual. And that's been very bad for the climate. It's also been bad for the economy in that we've created a very precarious economy um, rather than a well-being economy, which has widened inequalities. So, you know, we, we have to get this right this time, because I said earlier, we've only got really one chance to do this now. Time is very definitely running out. So, you know, this talks about the importance of supporting business and economic recovery. I absolutely agree, but there should be conditions attached to that. If you look at what the French have done, for example, with their aviation industry, they haven't just bailed out their aviation industry. They've said, OK, we'll support Air France, but we're only going to support you if you actually start to withdraw some of those domestic flights that are undermining our rail services. So, you know, putting in place clear conditionality into the recovery uh, and building the society that we want, I think, is hugely important. And we can do that. You know, there are sectors we do need to build into. We need to create the right opportunities for the renewable sector. Uh, which have been stifled over the years because governments have you know, not put in place the appropriate planning system, subsidy regime to allow that sector to expand in a, in a responsible way. Um, we've not really got to grips yet with investing in warm uh, zero carbon homes. We don't have anything like the scale of rollout uh, to ensure that all homes are going to be uh, meeting a high level of energy efficiency standard in, in the years uh, ahead. So there's a lot of work to do. Um, there's a lot of jobs that can be created but we need an absolute clear focus on what kind of economy we're trying to create here. We can't go back to business as usual. Thanks, Mark. And we'll go to Sarah Boyack next. Sarah, you're on mute, I think. Sorry, I thought I'd unmuted myself. Um, there are two things here. Um, first is changing policy frameworks. So in terms of both infrastructure and procurement, both of these would be a top priority because we need to change how these decisions are made because zero carbon are, is not factored into procurement or to infrastructure investment. And you've got to do that before you start spending new money. So these are, are strategic things that need to be done. And other policy changes would be, for example, um, teaching in schools in terms of our global climate um, uh, issues that we need to inform the next generation of young people and also sorting out more investment in our colleges for apprenticeships for green jobs so they would be policy shifts but in addition to that the green jobs agenda is absolutely massive so for example at the moment in renewables we're about to see repowering of renewables but without the conditionality so where are where is the infrastructure coming from at the moment we're importing it from china or indonesia with incredibly low salaries and there's a carbon emissions issue about importing our kit for renewables so we want to invest in scottish supply chains um, developing on companies like Bifab, um, the same in our buses. We reckon we could create 5,000, sorry, 2,500 jobs um, with 
um, using green investment um, in terms of low carbon buses, electrical vehicle rollouts. Um, and the other thing I think as a top priority in terms of immediate investment would be the energy efficiency in our homes. That's one of our major carbon emitters. We've got 25% of the population higher in our rural communities living in fuel poverty. So not just making people's homes more energy efficient and there's a massive job supply chain right across the country and apprenticeships, but also making sure that when we're doing that assessment of energy efficiency, you also factor in community heat networks, we look at um, whether heat pumps are appropriate or solar for water and heat and have a much more joined up approach because at the moment you only get your energy efficiency. We don't think about the long term heat and power and how you shift to low carbon. So they're, they're critical top priorities, I think. And the Scottish Conservation Corps were suggesting built on the um, post-war um, New Deal in the US. 10,000 jobs across the country, so peatland restoration, um, replanting trees with a priority in native trees. These would be transformational things that you could start in the first year of the Scottish Parliament. And that would, because it's got to be the next five years, so we don't want to be debating the circular economy bill in the run-up to the next election. It's got to be fast. And, and we know we're there with circular economy and good food nation. So I'd want to see those bills introduced pretty much in the next couple of months. Thanks. Thanks, Sarah, and I'll go to Molly Nolan next. Thanks, Jenny. Well, I think there's five things, and it sounds like a lot, but I'll run through them quickly. And I want to stress that I think there are all of these, uh, you know, areas create jobs, and and that's been stressed before is the need for green jobs. But ultimately, you know, every every area of our transition will create those jobs. So I'll start with, you know, we need to get carbon out of homes. We think that a national insulation uh, retrofitting insulation scheme could create 34,000 jobs and we know that there's you know there's a real lack in the workforce uh, of people who can do that work so training them up and getting them out there is going to be crucial you know I, I think we also need to tighten up our, our fuel poverty targets um, the you know the Scottish government's target won't take every household out of fuel poverty and that's not good enough we also need to get carbon out of transport um, we are we are really going very slowly on electric vehicles. Um, you know, I live in a very rural area. There are additional difficulties because of the, the current technology. But, you know, beginning with uh, having the, the public sector lead by example and requiring that procurement um, it, of vehicles in, in Scottish government and in public bodies is from electric um, only, that would make a really big difference. I think give people confidence uh, to, to make that switch. The nature emergency, of course, has been mentioned. Um, we absolutely have to, um, you know, tackle the the species um, uh, and uh, and animal extinction um, threats that we have, um, and things like carbon capture, peatland restoration. They're going to be really, really important, and also uh, planting more native woodlands. The circular economy is uh, a very crucial part of this, and I think, uh, you know governments around the world recognize that this is going to create a lot of jobs um, in repurposing and reusing. So we must, um, as Sarah said, get that bill going very early in the parliament. And lastly, um, the just transition. Liberal Democrats got a lot of money in the budget this year through constructive negotiations to target uh, reskilling and retraining people in the Northeast, um, where a lot of people are obviously um, very reliant on the oil and gas industry. So uh, rolling that out across Scotland and making sure that we are taking people with us and training people up to be ready to take on these new green jobs is going to be crucial. Thanks, Molly. And Julia Martin. 
Thank you. I, I think we're all agreed that we can't go back to the status quo. I mean, we were already, before the pandemic, we'd already set our net zero targets and there's um, obviously a pressure on to be, we kickstart the economy, but that doesn't mean that we can roll back in any of our ambitions towards net zero. And I just want to point out a couple of things that, that we've got in our manifesto, which um, will hopefully will get us to, um, well, I would say that the, the most challenging target is not so much the net zero one in 2045, it's the 2030 target of 75% reduction. So if I talk about housing, first of all, um, we're putting forward a 1.6 billion fund to decarbonise homes and uh, we'll be creating a zero emissions uh, housing, a social housing task force. So we've also pledged to, to build 100,000 new, uh, uh, 100, new social rent and affordable homes and the standards that will be required for them will be based on our net zero ambitions and keeping those um, homes uh, cheap and easy to heat and sustainable to heat with the green energy as well and also the building of them and, and the building standards required as well. Um, we're going to uh, put 95 million into uh, decarbonising the public estate as well. Um, and we are going to be, uh, um, sorry, I'm going to move on to transport. We're going to put 10% of our transport capital budget on active travel. One of the things that um, really, uh, I'm a cyclist um, and I, I, I cycle in Edinburgh when I'm down there. And um, one of the things that we need to really seriously grab by the lapels here is getting safe cycling routes for people. It's not safe at the moment. People want to go on their bikes in urban areas, but they've got the hearts in their mouths when they, when they go into the cities. So we really need to get a grip on and investing in those safe routes in urban areas for uh, cycle paths. And then looking at linking up towns to, to the um, and, and villages as, as well. Um, we are spending 500 million on uh, bus infrastructure as well. The aim is to have our public transport uh, decarbonised by 2030. So that's electrifying the rail lines, but also um, making sure that all the buses are um, powered by, by, by um, hydrogen, like they are in Aberdeen at the moment. Um, I should have mentioned I'm, I'm from Aberdeenshire. I didn't say where I was standing. I'm standing for Aberdeenshire East. But what, a lot of these things around like the, the, the public transport and, and the, the cycle pathways to so concentrate on the urban areas, the rural areas, we really need to accept the fact that people in rural areas do need to use their cars. So phasing out the petrol and diesel cars by 2030, it was 2032, it's now going to be 2030. Um, that, that's going to then put in the infrastructure to support the electric vehicles um, as well is going to be a big infrastructure goal as well. Um, and also putting more investment into the, the railways. In my area, in my constituency, I only have one train station. So there's a, there's a policy, we're going to have a strategic transport review and looking at the rural areas that don't have rail as an option at all. Um, we've got fantastic real infrastructure linking all our cities together, but what about, I mean, but what about you know, places like Peterhead and Fraserburgh uh, near where I live? They've got nothing. People have no option but to either use um, a bus, which takes about, you know, if you're going from Fraserburgh, it can take you nearly two hours to get into Aberdeen, um, whereas we need these sort of like fast rail links as well. And these are all things that are going to create jobs. 
so we need to be making sure that we have people skilled to be doing things like retrofitting homes, like uh, replacing gas boilers, if that's the way we want to go, or adapting gas boilers to take hydrogen, fitting solar panels, putting heat pumps in. At the moment, we just don't have the capacity of the workforce yet. So putting in, again, as I mentioned, that 500 million into new jobs and reskilling funds and a 100 million green jobs fund, that's going to be hugely important. But one other thing I want to mention before I come back to Jenny is the fact that, um, you know, obviously I'm, I live in the Northeast and uh, we're hugely re reliant on oil and gas for, for uh, people's livelihoods. We have very, very skilled people that need easier routes into transitioning into low carbon jobs. At the moment, we've got um, quite a lot of barriers in the way of that. It's a very high wage economy, but it's a very volatile industry. We need to be making, giving people the confidence that when they move, the, 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 the skills that they've got will be recognised and that will allow them to move into, for example, renewables um, and, and get a, a sustainable career for the rest of their lives. Because at the moment, we're, we're always living at a bit of a knife edge up here with the geopolitics surrounding oil and gas, apart from the fact that we need to stop burning oil and gas as well, and that um, the oil and gas uh, production that we use should be for, for, for manufacturing only and also producing the green energies like hydrogen for the future. Thanks, Gillian. Now, on the subject of oil and gas, um, could each candidate outline a detailed plan of how and when homeowners will be sporting changing the heating from oil and gas to renewables? And can I ask, I know that previous question was quite broad, but if you can keep your answers quite brief so we can cover as many questions as possible. We'll go to Molly Nolan first. It's a great question and it's something that, um, you know, we are we are very conscious of. So under our plans, we would bring forward an energy efficiency and zero carbon bill to underpin this zero carbon home strategy. And that would include switching a million homes from polluting uh, from mains gas to heat pumps by 2030. Um, and we also want to make sure that new builds are included in this. So we would support the passive house standard being adopted um, for all social housing by 2025 and for all new build residential property by 2030. Thanks, that's great. And we'll go to Sarah next. Yeah, but I go back to the point I made about um, tackling fuel poverty at the same time. So we know that heat networks tend to be more affordable, um, but rolling them out is going to be a challenge. So we need to make sure local authorities are funded and we would like to see more community heat networks and we'd like to see cooperatively owned renewables locally because that empowers people and it gives them some kind of say in what they get. Um, for existing homes, um, the point I made about doing the low carbon um, retrofitting now, you also need to look at the every individual house and have schemes. We would fund um, heat pumps, we'd fund solar, whatever is appropriate, particularly for low-income households, with a view to um, enabling uh, change into our EPC system so that we bring that forward and we get low-carbon houses. And one of the targets we'd have would be for uh, private rent to make sure that that's accelerated too in terms of energy efficiency. And we'd go for 120,000 new social housing properties over the next decade. Um, and already it's easier if it's social housing to have managed networks, um, to have communal solar panels, for example. So it's looking at the ownership issues as well as the investment in the properties. Thanks. Thanks, Sarah. Gillian. Uh, so I've mentioned a few things already. I mean, I mentioned the 1.6 billion to decarbonise homes by 2030. 
Um, but it, at the moment, alternatives to, to gas and oils like heat pumps are too expensive for, for most households and they're not suitable for every household as well. So um, I guess we need to subsidise that where, where appropriate and create a demand that will bring an economy of, of scale. And, and that's up to the government to actually you know, put incentives in place and, and subsidise that. But we can't scrap all gas boilers either, um, because they can potentially be adapted to run on low carbon fuel like, like hydrogen. We've got the potential to produce hydrogen in Scotland. And um, we're already, uh, we've got a hydrogen strategy, which is very ambitious. And there's a huge market out there. Um, like Germany is looking at powering a lot of their industry in hydrogen. So apart from the fact, so it's an incentive for us to actually become a hydrogen economy and actually produce it and export it, but also to power our homes as well. So that sort of like um, retrofitting of, of gas boilers to, to, to take hydrogen as an option as well. But we also have to look at the fact that there's already technologies out there that have been used by other countries that are amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in reading about the German in Norway who convert the, the heat from seawater and power communities um, by, by converting the heat that's, the, you know, you go into the depths of the seawater. Um, and it's a, quite a massive uh, outlay in terms of like initially, you know, the, the infrastructure there, but it does work. It's working in Norway. We need to look at things, like, I mean, we could be looking at things for like that for our coastal communities as well. Um, and, 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 and also using Tesla batteries. I mean, we've, we've got um, pilots happening at the moment. There's one, there's one in Edinburgh with solar at the moment. Um, there's a hydrogen pilot in Fife um, at the moment. Uh, forgive me, I can't remember exactly which town. And in Grampian Housing in Aberdeen, uh, my nearest city, they're, they're using um, Tesla batteries to, to do, put their uh, community heating in place as well. So I think, and I see that there's, the, again, I keep on coming back to this urban versus rural type situation. We've also remember in rural Scotland, we've got really a lot of homes that only have a kind of, they've got a big oil tank out, out the back. They're not even on the gas grid as well. Um, and remember also, we can actually, uh, on a good day, on a windy day, we can provide 100% of our electricity from wind power in Scotland. But at the moment, heating your home with electricity is, is, is just one of the more expensive options. I get that doesn't really rest with this, the Scottish Parliament powers-wise in terms of what happens there with the co contracts for difference, but that's something that really seriously needs to get looked at as well. Can we be using more electricity from wind power to actually heat our homes as well? Um, but whatever the options are for people, the main thing I keep on coming back to, it needs to be made easy for people. When your boiler breaks down or when your heating doesn't work, you need it fixed, you need it now, particularly in the winter, it always happens in the winter. It happened to me last winter. And you don't think about anything other than that needs fixed, that needs sorted now, the kids are freezing and we can't have showers and baths. So things like that have to have to happen easily. The retrofitting has to be not an onerous thing. It, it can't be an expensive thing uh, for people because we can't, this is a just transition issue as well. We can't leave people behind. At the moment, the people that are investing in solar panels and heat pumps are your middle-class people like, like me and, and my parents who can afford to sort of dabble in these things and investigate them and uh, spend a lot of money in this emerging technology. No, that has to be rolled out throughout the whole of Scotland because fuel poverty is a very big issue and the just transition, um, the people need to be able to play their part, but in a way that uh, isn't a huge inconvenience, inconvenience to them. 
Thanks, Gillian. Now on to Mark Ruskell. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to disagree with, with Gillian on this one. I think it would be a very dangerous distraction for us to go down the route of trying to heat all of our homes in Scotland, or the vast majority, using blue hydrogen. Um, you know, this is primarily a, a solution that's being put forward by the oil and gas industry to maximise production within the North Sea. And I don't think it's compatible with a just transition that sees those critical engineering jobs start to move into low carbon going forward. And the reason I think that is because it's primarily dependent on taking North Sea gas, cracking the hydrogen off it, and then storing the carbon through carbon capture and storage. And this is, carbon capture and storage is not a technology that's available now. There's a huge reliance on CCS in the Scottish Government's climate change plan. You know, our committee in Parliament has looked at this issue and we're skeptical of it. And I, I just have my doubts. I, I don't think CCS can be brought in quickly enough to decarbonize heating in that way. So I think we've got to look at other, you know, simpler technologies that can be rolled out. And, you know, what people said already is absolutely correct. We've got very different uh, housing types in Scotland. We've got different settings in urban settings where heat networks can work particularly well, particularly with high density housing. But we've also got rural communities as well. Uh, so I think the, the key here is to have a housing energy efficiency strategy that actually gets to those different housing types and those different settings and design solutions for them. So heat pumps, hugely important. Um, in rural communities, it may be biomass boilers, it may be other systems, but we need to have those advice and grant and loan schemes adapted towards those uh, individual circumstances. So, you know, we want to see a green rural home service, um, but we also want to look at deep retrofits. So it's possible when you've got a particular housing type to move through an entire community where you've got similar types of housing and actually retrofit that to bring in embedded renewables such as solar uh, panels and air source heat pumps into that mix to improve the energy efficiency of the house, but to do that at scale. So we do a whole community at a time. There's some great initiatives that, that, are, that are being piloted at the moment, particularly in Holland, where they're doing this. They're manufacturing uh, the facilities off-site um, for energy efficiency and embedded renewables, they're bringing them in to communities and they're fitting them very, very quickly in a matter of days. That will work for some housing types, but not others. So we need to think about pace and scale uh, and how we can include everybody in this, but I'm wary of false solutions like using blue hydrogen. Thanks, Mark and Liz. Uh, thank you. I mean, I think this is, this is a huge issue um, about our drive towards uh, net zero. In fact, I think it's probably one of the biggest challenges is the energy efficiency aspect of, of our homes. And uh, we, we've committed to 2.5 billion over a five year period, but that's not just about uh, ensuring that uh, the new homes that are being built are um, energy efficient. It's also about ensuring that the existing uh, homes uh, can have uh, some uh, refitting but also that we are looking after our rural areas because there are rural communities across Scotland who are not even on the grid. And I go back to the earlier point when I was introducing uh, my introductory remarks that um, you know, if we are going to approach this from a holistic angle, we have to make sure that this is um, fair to everybody. And I think we have to ensure that the, the rural communities are properly connected on this. And I think that's a big challenge. And, uh, I, I'm no scientist, but from what I understand from those who are scientists and the people who, again, uh, give evidence to a committee, I think we have to look at a mix um, of, of, the, uh, of the sector when it comes to what, what fits best in, in each area. And uh, yes, it's quite right to say that there are some really good practice uh, in other countries. 
Great. Now I'm going to bring together uh, a couple of questions relating to Scotland's seas, just for a bit of a change. Um, now, Scotland has failed to meet its international and domestic targets for achieving healthy seas and sustainable fish stocks. What will your party do to halt the decline of our seas and recover what we have lost? And also, what key policy would you introduce in the first six months to help recover Scotland's seas? Go to Sarah. Thanks. Well, one of the things that we've said that you really need to look at is um, blue carbon, and there's not been enough work on that done so far. So thinking about, um, it's, it's not just got to be our land where we look at climate emissions, we've also got to look at our seas, um, and that's a key issue that we would be wanting to pick up on. So I think um, having it in our um, having it in the refreshed climate change plan is going to be absolutely critical. Um, and I think also working with um, fishing industry to avoid unsustainable fishing practices, which have actually ripped out some of our um, corals. It's ripping out some of our um, different types of fish um, because we've got overfishing. So there's a, a balance here between, as we've come out of Brexit, the, the chaos that you've now got in the fishing industry, but you've also got to make sure that we don't see overfishing and we've, we've got more scope for marine protected areas. Um, the scope to expand those because we've got areas that are currently vulnerable that don't have the protection that they would need. So MPAs would be one of the top priorities for me um, and reviewing what we've got at the moment and picking up on what doesn't work because you've clearly got gaps in different bits of the country. Um, and there's been discussions in the past about whether we need a, a national park that's a marine based national park. So I think that would be an early conversation I would want to see in the Scottish Parliament to see what would be the options. Thanks. Great. And Liz? Uh, thank you. Um, we've committed uh, 25 million to a cleaner seas fund uh, straight away because, and, and Sarah uh, Boyack is absolutely right to say that, you know, there are issues that we need to look at, particularly with the most recent data that has appeared um, on where the areas are. I mean, I, th I think we are very much in favour of a review of the marine protected areas because um, th there are some that need protection that don't have it just now. And, you know, there are issues where um, people are definitely overfishing. Um, but nonetheless, I, I think we have, we have to be very clear about what the objectives are. And, and Julie Martin, who chaired the committee, um, we looked at this marine issue uh, in, in very considerable uh, uh, detail, actually. And I'm not sure we've got everything right uh, on that. And, uh, and I think that, uh, as I understand it, a lot of the data that is forthcoming at the moment is actually quite new data. And I think that's going to be very helpful in informing us exactly what we have to do with marine protected areas and where exactly we need to uh, clean up the seas uh, most. So that's where I want to see the priority in the next parliament. Great. Mark? Yeah, so the, the, the top action for me is about putting in place a three-mile limit to exclude uh, dredging and trawling from our immediate coastal areas, because, you know, that's where we're seeing the damage at the moment, and we need to take decisive action. We had a three-mile limit previously, um, it was effective. We, we, need, we need some sort of bold political consensus on this, on, on what is actually needed to restore our seas. Um, and I think when it comes to marine protected areas, I mean, designating MPA, MPAs is really important. I'm proud of the fact that, you know, we got some additional budget um, with our negotiation with the Scottish Government to do that. But simply designating an MPA isn't enough. We need protection plans in place alongside those designations. Otherwise, they just become paper parks. Um, and compliance is really important. So putting in place 
um, vessel monitoring on fishing boats so we can make sure that there isn't illegal dredging taking place. Um, Sarah mentioned about blue carbon, um, absolutely agree with that. And I think one way forward could be establishing a blue carbon marine protected area. So we recognize um, the importance of kelp forests and some of the, the, the sort of benthic environments for um, capturing carbon. And then finally, um, perhaps one of the biggest environmental issues that, that's been discussed in Scottish Parliament is salmon farming. What is the future of salmon farming? I, I can see a future, but it's based on um, innovation to eliminate the environmental problems that salmon farming is creating at the moment. Uh, and there are numerous ones from pollution to you know, genetic mixing with wild fish populations. Um, you know, we, we are facing a crisis with salmon farming at the moment. So we need to see regulation that drives the innovation that can give that industry a future because right now I think it's in a very precarious state. Thanks, Mark. Gillian? Yeah, I'm going to follow on from Mark there and, 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 and say straight off that um, the situation with, with salmon farming and the, and the pollution that it has been shown to cause to our marine areas is a, a priority. Uh, we need to look at um, ways in which we can perhaps have a completely contained uh, fish farms on, on land so they're not actually in, in sea lochs as well. Um, and support you know, that, that development of closed containment fish, fish production and uh, explore the potential to create more shellfish and worm water, to have land-based farms um, for, for that kind of thing, but also have a, a sort of the regulatory processes around that, that, the planning and development of fish farms to be a wee bit more transparent um, and, and efficient. So um, I, I think one of the things that, that's in our manifesto was the plan to establish a new dete single determinant authority on that, so it's been modelled on the Norway regime as well. Um, I agree with what people are saying about marine protected areas. You probably find that actually we will agree with quite a lot with one another. I mean, with three people who were sat in the uh, environment uh, committee together um, and worked in quite a lot of these areas. One thing that, that nobody's mentioned um, so far is the work that we did in the committee on marine planning partnerships. Um, that's uh, at the moment, there's only three in various, various stages of development. Uh, communities need to be more involved in what's actually happening on their, uh, in their seas and their seabeds um, and having these marine planning partnerships rolled out across Scotland so that what's actually getting built, what's actually happening in their seas is something that people have, um, there's almost like a planning process around that um, and consent given so that, that things are in the right place, you know, your, 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 your fish farms are in the right place, your, um, any structures that go in the seabed are in the right place. But that whole issue that Liz mentioned about data is really important because fish stocks are changing all the time. And the people that have probably got the, the, the best way of actually monitoring where particular species of fish are, um, and remember that the, the waters are, are, are warming, so a lot of it is driving certain species northwards, are our fishing vessels. So, you know, um, working in partnership with the fishing industry to, to actually collect data um, and keep that, you know, it's obviously commercially sensitive, but actually working with the government and, and government and the fishing industry together so that we can ascertain what we've got and where we've got it. Because as, as a few people have said, you know, these marine protected areas, are they in the right place? Are there ones, as we saw recently with the flap, the flapper skate, we actually found eggs for the flapper skate in an area that hadn't seen it for, for, eight, for, for many, many years. So we had to put in a protection there very quickly. So we need to know where we've got it, how much we've got it, so we can actually monitor what we need to protect and where we need to protect it. Thanks. And Molly. 
Thanks, Jenny. Well, I mean, I agree with a lot, what a lot of other people have said, and I think, you know, there are there are real competing priorities uh, in terms of our marine space. We've got aquaculture, we've got renewables, we've got marine protected areas, um, and we recognise that we really need to get the balance right here. So, um, you know, we, we would support a marine uh, recovery plan and, and you know, uh, look into designating new protected areas where the science does um, support that. And we would also support more research into carbon capture in the seabed. Um, but I think one thing that hasn't been mentioned yet, and forgive me if it has, is the circular economy is going to play a really huge part in helping us clean up our seas and, you know, um, getting plastics out of the ocean. So um, Gillian mentioned they're working in partnership with the, the fishing industry, and I think that's going to be really key. And there, there are initiatives like Fishing for Litter, which, uh, you know, would bring fisher, fishers along with us uh, um, and allow the, us to, to work directly together to clean up the oceans. We just need the funding for that, but it's a very simple and effective way of helping clean up the seas. Thank you. And actually, that was going to be my next question on the circular economy. So a transition to clean energy will only address 50 55% of emissions across the globe. To address the remaining 45%, further changes will be needed, such as the creation of a circular economy. What are your proposals for continuing Scotland's efforts to create a circular economy? Now, I have to be quite brief because we're running out of time. I'm going to go to Liz Smith first. Thanks very much. I mean, I think this uh, circular economy uh, issue is absolutely vital. And I understand the Scottish government's uh, concerns during the pandemic to why you know, it had to be delayed. But I, I think it's absolutely crucial now because um, it, it's crucial because we've got to do so much more to ensure that people are... Um, renewing uh, their approach to a much better uh, usage of uh, how they, you know, the, the resources that they are, are consuming. Um, and I, it is about a behaviour change. And this is where I think it's, um, it, it's a difficult uh, area because I think there's going to be a, a, a debate about um, the balance between um, encouragement and more punitive uh, measures. And I think that's going to be quite a difficult debate to be had because there are definitely uh, behaviour changes to be made. Um, and that's something that I think, as I say, is going to be central to this debate about whether you have uh, greater encouragement through investment, but it does demand that there is a, a greater uh, knowledge um, amongst the community as to exactly what it is that they need to uh, reuse and um, recycle and you know I think we've got to invest money in the recycling um, aspect because that's crucial and during the first phase of the pandemic when we saw that recycling centres were closed down perhaps understandably but they were closed down we saw the problems that uh, came from that particularly when it came to fly tipping and, uh, and a lot of the antisocial behaviour that has got absolutely no place in uh, in a green uh, Scotland. So I, I think there's there's going to be a lot of uh, debates about that. But again, it's about where the investment is put uh, in recycling and how people uh, can change their behaviour. Thanks, Liz, and thanks for taking part. Uh, you can go on to your next event. Now we will go to Mark. Yeah, um, I mean, I think we're all, you know, desperate to see this circular economy bill. And we thought it was coming, you know, towards the end of the last session of Parliament, and, and it was delayed for a range of reasons. But yeah, it's vitally important. And I think, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, climate change. Um, but I think we also have to recognize that about 80% of our emissions uh, are actually coming from goods that, that we import, goods and services that we import. Um, so there's a whole other part of our economy and part of our consumption patterns, uh, which are actually driving climate change. So 
it's really important that, that we get that into the circular economy bill. Um, I mean, I, I think consumption targets would, would make sense. We need a conversation about how we can how we can approach that and how we can drill down on our overconsumption as a society. I think the, the other things I'd like to see in, in the circular economy bill, I mean, certainly a, a move towards, um, you know, a ban on building more waste incinerators, which are only gonna uh, create an incentive uh, for producing more rubbish rather than uh, reducing uh, waste production uh, and taxation, fair taxation for existing incinerations. I think we need to think about things like longer, you know, warranties, resource reduction plans, how public procurement can play a part. And I think there's great things happening in the European Union as well with their circular economy plan. So we need to stay aligned with the great innovation and progress that's happening in the EU at the moment as well. Thank you, Molly. Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with what much of what Mark is saying there. I think we need to look, you know, right at the beginning of the supply chain. We need to look at the rest of the world, really, to to, to understand best practices and global standards on things like design. Um, it, re it really begins right at the design stage in terms of actually reducing the amount that we have uh, going into circulation in the first place. And I think, again, the same thing that I mentioned with electric vehicles, the public sector needs to be leading by example when it comes to procurement, so we need strong strategies to make sure that the public sector is, um, is, is you know, maintaining the circular economy. Um, and then, of course, uh, I think Liz mentioned as well, infrastructure investment um, to deal with all kinds of things, you know, for an example would be um, post-consumer textiles, textiles, things like that, you know, we're going to need that kind of investment to, to get this going. Thanks. And Gillian. So yeah, like everyone else um, who's hoping to see the circular economy bill happen in the last parliament, <laughs> given the workload that our committee had, I just couldn't see how it would even be fitted in. But it, it has to be a priority. It has to happen early in the next parliament. We need to look at single-use plastics, um, single-use plastics, and we need to do that in consultation with the people of Scotland. We looked at how we banned straws. Um, you know that we we had to um, go out and speak to people about what that might mean to them. People with disabilities might need straws. And that was something that maybe initially, it looked like a good thing to, to ban plastic straws, but then we had part of society saying, well, actually I need that. So same thing with single use, it has to be something that whenever we do that, anything to do with you know banning anything or not allowing people to use it, we go out and we speak to people in Scotland and we check that you know what the implications could be for, for, for certain people in that but generally single-use plastics and we really need to, to, to tackle that one thing as well but this reuse and recycle we don't repair enough things um it's something that really really annoys me how quickly things break and it's cheaper to get a new one than to actually repair it. Um, and you know, what Mara was saying about extended warranties around things is something we need to look at as well. Of course, we've also got the deposit return scheme, um, which should be rolled out next year as well, which will make a quite a big difference in terms of our drinks containers, but also um, banning those sort of single-use uh, coffee cups and uh, that you see lying around. And of course, we've got ourselves in a situation when we're dealing with the pandemic, how many of these masks do you see thrown in the ground? I have I lost count of the amount of times. And every time, every time I go out for a walk with my dogs, I see one of those blue masks, at least. Um, so things like that. And so, so dealing with the pandemic, we're using a lot of single-use uh, stuff as well. We need to look at how we, we, we tackle that as well, because that's something that's going to 
you know, uh, it's not it's not going to degrade uh, in our environment anytime soon. They're going to be there for a long time. So we're also committed to looking at the role that incineration plays around this as well and the waste hierarchy. And I agree with Mark on that. We um, and of course, one of the last things that we did in the last parliament, one of the regulations we put through is we doubled the plastic bag charge as well. So that's uh, something that's happened with regard to waste. But yes, yeah, circular economy bill can't happen soon enough. I think it has to be one of the first things that gets scrutinised by the new Environment, Climate Change and Land Reform Committee. Should it be in its, uh, the same form? Thanks, Gillian and Sarah. Thanks. Yeah, well, I agree with a lot of what's been said. I think I would frame this as a just transition um, because there's issues about us in Scotland, but there's also issues about our supply chains um, and others have talked about imports that we have. So, for example, the fast fashion agenda, um, but it goes wider than that in terms of clothes and textiles. We import all of that and we don't ask any questions about who makes those clothes, how little they get paid, what the dangers are, both in terms of health and safety and environment. Um, and the Rana Plaza disaster was the famous disaster, but they've actually been right across East and Southeast Asia, lots of problems with factories. And there's something about using our public procurement. So for example, NHS, uniforms, working with local authorities so that we make sure when we are importing um, textiles and clothes, we ask those questions and that we look at using them for much longer. Um, I think there's also, um, big issues about local authorities being brought into this conversation and third sector organisations, because to deliver on recycling, reuse, repair, you need to change the, the opportunities people have got locally. So there's a bit of behavioural change here, but there's also making it possible for people. Um, and I think that's a key issue. And um, the other thing I would say is that we need to do more on um, education and behavioural change. So that Gillian makes a comment about um, plastic straws there's also other types of straws um, and there are alternatives but we need to incentivize companies and partly that's about consumer change and I think there's a lot more we could do using the political leadership and the Scottish government local authorities and um, working with the private sector to get the changes made um, and, and the other thing in terms of local authorities is making sure we don't have large-scale incineration being given permission because that just pretends that we don't have a problem here. Um, and we've also got to think about what do we export in terms of our waste? And if we change the narrative on that and we change the way we think about waste and think about how we re reuse that waste, there's potentially an economic opportunity here that we both tackle the just transition because we're not exporting our waste, um, which we never see again, but it ends up getting dumped in low-income uh, countries. And I think COP26, is potentially our opportunity to have that dialogue because as an advanced industrial nation, our priorities are different from our other countries that we're working with um, across the globe. And I think we've got good targets, but we need to change. And this would be a classic example of, there's a lot of difficult stuff we've got to do that would bring huge benefits to our communities, but also in terms of employment and our environment. Thanks. And that seems like a good place to stop. I'm sorry, that's all we've got time for. I know there were a lot more questions. We had, a, we had really a lot of um, different questions, lots of good questions. And unfortunately, we couldn't cover them all. So sorry if we didn't get to yours. But thank you to all five of our candidates for taking part in this and all best with your campaign. And thank you for all you uh, people who've been listening along and submitting your questions. Thanks for joining us.
You've been listening to a Holyrood Hustings on the Environment. Tune in tomorrow to hear our education hustings. Thanks for listening.